0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel. Do you have what it takes to climb up Mount Everest? Well, imagine successfully climbing nine times. Coming up, we hear my interview with West Hartford resident Locke Sherpa, the only woman in the world to hold this record. But first, one of the latest stories from National Geographic magazine focuses on a topic we've talked about on the show, the rising maternal death rate in America. Throughout the latest NatGeo story, are photographs by award-winning photojournalist and former Where We Live guest, Lindsay Adario. For more than two decades, Adario has captured images from conflicts around the world. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, National Geographic, and Time Magazine. She's the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant and was awarded a Pulitzer for international reporting. Lindsay's also a Connecticut native, and she's released a new book called Of Love and War. We spoke to her from NPR studios in Washington, D.C., Lindsay, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I was thinking uh, as I look through your book and um, from being a journalist for many years, when we see photographs from uh, conflict zones, whether it's in a newspaper or a magazine, uh, we don't know very much about the person behind the lens. Instead, we're focusing on the image before us. And I was thinking about how dangerous your job is. And in the book, you include details um, of things that have happened to you while covering stories in places like Iraq and Libya, including in in 2011 when you and uh, three other journalists were held by the Libyan army. Can you tell us what happened?
1: Well, what happened in Libya, we were covering the popular uprising in 2011. And I was working with Tyler Hicks, Anthony Shadid, and Steve Farrell for The New York Times. And uh, we were working the front line. And I, uh, me and Tyler had been working on the front line uh, for about two weeks at that point. And uh, I was getting ready to head back east to Benghazi, which was sort of a safer area further away from the front line. And we were in the town of Ajdabia, and Gaddafi's troops uh, were coming closer and closer. So they were pushing in from the west, and we were working uh, sort of alongside the rebels. We were covering the war from the perspective of the rebels. And uh, as Gaddafi's troops pushed in closer, we knew that there was a risk that they might overrun the city that we were in. And we had to sort of make a decision as to how long to stay. And as journalists and, of course, as photographers, we always want to stay as long as we possibly can because we want the freshest photos. We want uh, pictures of combat and we want pictures of wounded. So... We uh, got a call that Gaddafi's troops were in the city. Our driver, Mohammed, got a call from his brother, who was working with the BBC, and we had to. We decided to stay a bit longer to keep trying to cover the fighting. And by the time we made a decision to pull out uh, east toward Benghazi, um, we ran directly into one of Gaddafi's checkpoints. And uh, they were incredibly hostile because Gaddafi had made many announcements saying, uh, if you see journalists, they're all spies, you should kill them. Um, We had all – anyone covering the popular uprising in Libya had entered illegally uh, from Egypt because it was the only way to cover the war. Gaddafi didn't want journalists in the East covering the fighting. So uh, we were – taken and uh, we were put face down in the dirt, uh, had guns put to our head. Uh, They were about to execute us. Each one had a gun put to our heads. And um, they decided not to. They said, we can't shoot them, we're American. Uh, The commander said, we can't shoot them, they're American. And so instead they tied us up, uh, blindfolded us, placed us in vehicles uh, on the front line and held us there for hours as bombs and bullets rained around us. They beat us. uh, They threatened us with execution. And this went on uh, over the course of six days. Uh, We were put in prison. Um, We couldn't speak to one another except for one night when we were in a prison cell together alone. Um, but we could hear each other getting uh, beaten and groped, and but we couldn't speak. So it was uh, it was terrifying.
0: Did you have faith that you would be able to go home again?
1: You know, the thing about being kidnapped is you don't know and you don't have any control. And I think that is the scariest part. I mean, I think any one of us can endure, you know, getting punched, getting uh, threats or whatever you have to endure because the human spirit is capable, goes into this sort of survival mode. But I think the scary thing is the unknown. So for me, that's sort of what I was consumed with, not knowing if I would survive, if I might be raped. Um, There were, and there, you know, there are a lot of unknowns in that situation. Uh, In your new book of Love and War, uh, we see
0: photographs from that time that you spent in Libya. Uh, How did you decide to include the photographs that you did? Because you've been doing this now for more than 20 years, taking thousands of photographs. I'm just curious if you could walk us through that
1: process. Sure. I mean, I think um, first I'll answer to the fact that um, when we were taken in Libya, everything we owned was stolen. We had uh, all the photographs I'd taken, my computer, the, our our bags, my shoes off my feet. And so a few days before that happened, I had a sort of premonition that something might happen. And I actually gave a hard drive of all of my work from Libya to that date to a colleague, Brian Denton. And I said, if we get taken, or if something happens to me, can you please make sure my photos survive? And so that's the only reason why I still have that body of work from Libya. I had, you know, whatever I filed to the New York Times while I was on assignment, but I had a more comprehensive body of work because I had given a hard drive off uh, a few days before. When I was, uh, when I finally made the decision to do a book of photography, I um, it was really difficult because I do have millions of photographs. I've been photographing for 23 years, uh, all over the world. And I don't consider myself the best editor of my own work. So I, um, I started sort of making these folders of not only countries that I've worked in, but some of the bodies of work that have sat with me over time. And I made some phone calls and talked to some colleagues about book designers and book editors, because often a photographer will pair up with someone who can help sort of them through the process of of how to put a photo book together, and I was given the name of Stuart Smith, who is based in London. He's done many, many books for many years, and I went to see him. And we established a rapport, and I sort of just dumped thousands of pictures onto him and said, okay, let's see what you think. Let's see what, you know, what your vision is. And, and he was familiar with my work, but I think once they started combing through the pictures, I kept going back every few weeks and, and um, over, over the course of about a year, and we finally sort of honed it down to pretty much what you see in the book, more or less. And uh, readers will see uh, that you take us through
0: the time you spent um, uh, in Afghanistan and in Iraq uh, during the war, but also in uh, several countries, uh, African countries. And just again, I'm, I'm curious, as you look through this body of work, right, you said millions of photographs. Do you see how um, how you were able to take a picture? Did that change over the years? How did you uh, view these pictures
1: today? Did you still see them as good photographs? Yeah, so no, I'm I mean, uh, look, I my first sort of trip that was into a dangerous place was to Afghanistan under the Taliban. And I made t- three trips to Afghanistan before September 11th. And, you know, frankly, I was 27 years old. I was not a very good photographer. I didn't really have the tools to know how to photograph in a place where photography was illegal. Um, and ha- so how to sneak photos and work under pressure. And half my pictures were out of focus. Some are, you know, I had them developed. I was shooting film at the time I had them developed in Pakistan and they completely scratched all my negatives and the, sometimes the fixer wasn't working, which means um, so my negatives were half exposed. And so you know, I would do it very differently if I could go in back into that situation now with the experience and the knowledge I have as a photographer.
0: Uh, um, People can choose uh, many careers. How did you get into becoming a photojournalist? And walk us through what it was like to start your career because you mentioned I think the first time that you were living abroad was in India and you didn't have much money.
1: (laughs) No. Um, So no, I uh, was, look, I was raised in uh, Westport, Connecticut, and I was raised uh, in a family of hairdressers, essentially. And so it was a very, very creative household, one that really fostered creativity and expression. And, you know, so it was very artistic and a lot of fun. And so my parents never put any sort of conditions on me or my sisters and said, you must do this or you must go to college and you must become this. And they just said, follow your dreams and follow your heart and you'll be successful. And so for me, when I became interested in photography, um, I wasn't familiar with photojournalism. I didn't understand that you could tell stories with photographs and cover these international relations and politics with photography. So I moved to Argentina. Uh, right after college, so I was twenty one years old, and I moved there to learn spanish and It was really there that I became aware of pictures in the newspaper and how you can tell stories with pictures and so i um I started photographing there and and managed to sort of talk my way into a job at the buenos Aires herald there and um and then I went back to the U.S. and started making my, making a name for myself in New York as a freelance photographer. I was freelancing for the Associated Press. And I never had any money. I was, just, I was dirt poor. I always had about, if I was lucky, I had about $12 in the bank. And I was always struggling to buy cameras. And meanwhile, my sisters were leading a more conventional life and getting married, falling in love and getting married. And and my uh, father and his partner, Bruce, would help f- – they would pay for the wedding. And so I went to my father and Bruce with a proposal. And I said, uh, you know, I'm in my 20s, and I have no interest in getting married right now. And would you advance me my wedding money <laughs> as if I was getting married now so I can buy my first cameras? And then by the time I care about marriage, I won't need your help. <laughs> so, so that's how I got my first cameras. When you think about um –
0: trying to get access uh, when you're oftentimes photographing very uncomfortable
1: situations. uh, How do you do it? How do you get them to trust you? Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest part of being um, a photojournalist is is being able to get the people that I'm photographing to open up to me, to trust me, to be authentic. Um, a lot of that, for me personally, uh, I am very honest myself. I go in, I don't have sort of my cameras out. I go in, I sit down, I introduce myself, I talk to whoever it is that I'm going to photograph and, you know, I explain Um Why I think it's important to tell their story and ask if they want to share their story. You know, I mean, they have a sovereign right to say no. um, And many people say no to me. But I think the people who choose um, to speak with journalists and to open up and and to to let me photograph them are people who understand that um, the effectiveness of photography and the effectiveness of, of getting their stories out because they can help other people, too.
0: Uh, when you think about um, being a woman, how did that impact your access to um, different countries because you weren 't a man I was thinking when you, I was looking at those pictures when you were photographing in Afghanistan uh, under Taliban rule how did they how did they uh, interact
1: with you and at times uh, was it dangerous so yeah, I mean everyone uh, always asked me about my gender and for me being a woman has always been a huge advantage. I have been able to access women in countries that are segregated by gender. And so as a, a foreign woman, I have access to the women, but I also have access to the men because they sort of, they they allow me into most spaces. And so it's always been a great asset. And under the Taliban, it was uh, even more so because photography was illegal. So I could go into the women's hospital, for example, and the Taliban wouldn't come inside. So the women didn't mind if I took their picture, so and they wanted to show how devastating the conditions were there, how they had no medicine, how they, they had very few doctors and nurses, and so they were very happy to have uh, someone there telling their story, and so they allowed me to photograph, and the Taliban couldn't even come inside. Uh, I mentioned earlier what happened to you in
0: Libya, but you'd also were kidnapped when uh, you were covering uh, a story in Iraq uh, during the war. And as a woman, when we think about safety, was that something that you worried about often?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's something I still worry about. I just returned from Yemen. uh, And I was also in northern Nigeria over the last two months. And so I think I'm constantly thinking about my security and how to do these stories and and do them, you know, there's always a calculated risk involved, but to do them uh, in a way where I can come back alive. I think um, I've been kidnapped twice. But I think, you know, anyone who does this job understands that these are some of the risks. And, you know, we are all willing to take them because we believe in journalism, we believe in the power of uh, photojournalism, and also the importance of being there to bear witness, to tell these stories, to create a set of documents that's factual. Um, I think it's uh, exponentially important now, where we have um, a president that talks about fake news a lot, um, I think we need to uh, stand up and say, you know, journalism is a fundamental right and we are a society built on free press. Mm.
0: Lindsay Adario is a photojournalist who's covered stories for The New York Times. I spoke with her before The Times published its series on the humanitarian crisis in Yemen that included gut-wrenching images of children who were starving to death. I asked her how
1: photojournalists respond to criticism
0: that images capturing suffering and death
1: are sensational. There are millions of uh, Yemeni children, for example, on the brink of famine. And so, you know, yes, they're sensational images, but we're not creating that sensation. We're not creating that situation. We as photographers are going in to document the situation there because no one can get in. Very few photographers and journalists can get in. And that is sadly the reality. So it's not sensationalizing the reality. It is the reality. And so, aid workers, governments, you know, we American citizens, our tax dollars are going to help support and perpetuate the war in Yemen. Now, that, in my opinion, is something we should be ashamed of. And so I think, you know, when perhaps Americans see these images of children who are starving, and this is all a result of the ongoing war in Yemen. So it's sensational, but it's the reality. And so The people, when I walk into a hospital, for example, and see children who are skin and bones and their mothers are sort of thrusting their children toward me and saying, you know, show the world, show the world, my child, because they can't do anything else. And they only can hope that the international community will come in and act. And so I think, you know, it's not sensationalizing. It's more documenting what is actually there. Lindsay, how do you respond to
0: along that question um, that your pictures are uh, more of a westernized view, that you're the outsider looking in uh, on uh, this photograph and uh, may not be able to capture
1: exactly what's happening to that person? Of course. I mean, I can't change where I'm from. I am a foreigner. I am a westerner. I do go into countries. Um, that are not my own. And so I think in an ideal world, we would have local people photographing their own wars. Um, but that's not always possible. Because, for example, a person photographing in his or her own country might be thrown in prison for free for trying to for trying to express dissent against the government. You know, a lot of these countries are authoritarian. Um, journalists are routinely Disappeared, kidnapped, uh, threatened, and killed. And so, I think that um, foreigners have a bit more, a bit more of a safety net, and particularly Americans, because until this point, we've had governments who stand up for journalism and journalists and American citizens around the world. And so, I think, you know. I go in. I try to be as empathetic and understanding and do my homework about the culture and the war or whatever is happening. Um, But at the end of the day, I can't change where I've come from. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio.
0: I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I'm talking with Lindsay Adario, an award-winning photojournalist. She's a Connecticut native whose work has appeared in The New York Times, National Geographic, and Time Magazine. Lindsay has a new book out called Of Love and War, which includes pictures from her time covering war and conflict around the world for more than two decades. After the break, we'll continue our conversation, and you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Lindsay Adario is a photojournalist who grew up in Westport, Connecticut. Her career spans more than two decades and has taken her around the world, from Afghanistan to Sub-Saharan Africa and beyond. Her first photo book came out recently. It's called Of Love and War. The pictures provide a glimpse into her career, but the book also includes personal letters and interviews that gives context to the people she's met and the stories she's covered. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Lindsay, to talk about um, how you cope with some of the trauma that you're seeing every day because we are human and it's hard. Uh, sometimes journalists are told uh, to keep your emotions at bay. But when you're, again, are in these uh, very uh, delicate moments and um, there's a, uh, an anecdote, of you share a letter you wrote to your mother after um, seeing children in a, in a cancer ward uh, in Baghdad and how that impacted you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't really subscribe to the journalists need to be hardened and keep their emotions at bay and be stoic. And that's not me. I mean, I I couldn't do this job if I was that type of person. You know, I sort of I care about everyone I photograph. I'm constantly plagued and tortured by the fact that I was born into a life of relative privilege. And so many people around the world were not. Um, and so I, you know, for me, I go into situations, I talk to people, I sometimes I cry with them, sometimes I cry while I'm photographing, you know, I think this is all part of this job and having done this work for over 20 years, so I think what I wanted to do with this book is is include some of that narrative, include some of the things that I was feeling when taking these pictures—the frustration, the sadness, the devastation, um, you know, the unknown. Not you know, there's one. Letter that I write that says, you know, I almost died today and every day I feel like I'm going to die, you know, and I think that was a reality at that point. And many people, when they look at the New York Times, when they read the New York Times magazine or Time, they don't understand that there is an actual person taking those pictures, risking their lives and getting very emotional.
0: Lindsay, uh, what uh, made you keep doing your job time and time again, despite, you know, feeling these emotions, but despite surviving uh, several times over uh, when, you know, you could have easily been killed when you were covering uh, the wars or in uh, delicate
1: situations? Look, I believe in uh, journalism. I believe that the, the world has a right and a, and a, they have a responsibility to know what's happening around the world, uh, especially if there are injustices against people and women and, you know, children. Uh, There are civilian casualties that take place in these wars. There are people starving. We need to know, you know, just because we live in a comfortable home in America where we don't have fighting on our doorstep, we can do something with our power as a nation. Around the world, people have looked to America to be sort of the police of the world, to go in when when, When, there's a genocide happening, when there's something happening, they turn to America to intervene. And we have to be principled and have integrity. And I think that journalists and journalism hold people accountable. And so it's very important to me, this work.
0: It seems as uh, you follow uh, the work that you've done uh, through the years, Lindsay, you gravitate towards uh, issues that women encounter um, in other parts of the world, including in Sierra Leone. Can I ask you to describe, there's a a series of three photographs uh, where you are following uh, women who are um, delivering and uh, focusing in on the fact that there is a high maternal mortality rate in a place like Sierra
1: Leone. The story of this 18-year-old, old who just delivered twins was especially heartbreaking. Yeah, so I, uh, in 2009, when I won the MacArthur Fellowship, I wanted to do something uh, more long term, I wanted to do something, a series of pictures or stories where I wasn't necessarily getting them assigned to me from a publication. So I finally had money. And I wanted to send myself and do these stories. So I started researching and I, um, I learned that over 500,000 women a year were dying in childbirth for almost completely preventable causes so 98% of those deaths were preventable and uh, so I started looking into it and Sierra Leone uh, was one of the countries with the highest rate of maternal mortality. And so I went there. And I think at that time there were about three OBGYNs in the whole country. And uh, there were very few doctors in the provinces, the remote provinces. And and so I went to the Magbaraka Government Hospital in in, uh, in rural Sierra Leone. And when I got there, I met Mama Cisse. She was a young woman. Um, she actually was in school And her father pulled her out of school to get married as a young woman and to have children when she was uh, about 15. And so she was pregnant uh, with twins. And uh, she delivered the first baby in the village and the second baby wouldn't come out. And so her sister, who was a midwife, had uh, f- had thought ahead and, and knowing the maternal death rate in Sierra Leone, had sent an ambulance toward their village. And to get to that ambulance, Mama Cisse had to take a canoe across a river after having just delivered a baby and with one still inside and then take that ambulance and drive about 6 hours over bumpy roads and so when i met her she was exhausted but we talked we talked for about an hour uh, i asked her all about her life and her studies and and then she delivered the second baby and I was recording video but also shooting stills and I realized uh, the midwives after she delivered her, her baby the midwives were all sort of talking and concentrating on trying to revive the baby because that often happens the baby had been inside her so long that it was almost unresponsive so the midwives were all gathered around the baby and I looked over and Mama Cisse was bleeding profusely and I said I think she's bleeding too much and you know, I'm not a doctor, but it just didn't look right. And, and they were like, no, she's fine. And they sort of mopped up the blood. And and so then I went to try and find that one doctor uh, in the province, and he was in surgery. And so I put on scrubs, and I went into surgery. And, and I said, you know, I, I think there's a woman who's dying. And he sort of looked at me like I was crazy and, and said, you know, well, I'm busy. I'm in surgery. And so I went back, and they took her blood pressure, and it was 60 over 30. And so they picked her up, and and I said, why don't we just bring her to the doctor's, like, doorstep, essentially, so when he comes out of surgery, she's right there. And he came out and took her blood pressure, and she was dead. And so... I went back two years later uh, to a neighboring district in Sierra Leone uh, because at that point, Doctors Without Borders um, had told me that they had implemented an ambulance system sort of in response to the high maternal death rate um, because ambulances could help get women Uh, to hospitals and to doctors. And that was one of the main reasons why women were dying childbirth. And so with that ambulance system, they had determined that they lowered the maternal death rate by 60%, which is incredible. And so I went back and I continued doing that work. And so the other two images in that series are are from uh, 2012. Your career is the
0: focus of an upcoming movie. What can you tell us about it?
1: Well, uh, right now, the movie is slated to be uh, directed by Ridley Scott, and uh, Scarlett Johansson is attached to play me. That's a pretty awesome choice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, It was optioned by Warner Brothers, so um, they are uh, controlling pretty much everything. So, yeah, it's exciting.
0: Uh, when we uh, think back to your upbringing in Connecticut, you have this uh, lovely picture of your family when you were a little girl with your uh, sisters and parents. Um, how, do you, how did they accept your career
1: and um, you know, wh- what you've been able to accomplish? Look, I don't think any of this would be possible without my family because I have been so lucky. I have the most incredible family. I have supportive parents. I have my sisters. Uh, I have a great husband. I'm, you know, I'm very lucky. And I think that what keeps me going in so many of these tough situations is the fact that I feel empowered. I feel like I come from a a really solid base. Um, I'm emotionally stable. Um, and I'm resilient because I come from a place of, of stability and, uh, and of love and so I think you know for me my family is a huge part of who I am and, and why I became the woman I am. I should have asked
0: you uh, at the start of the interview there's this beautiful picture on the cover of your new book of
1: love and war. How did you choose this particular photo? So there were uh, about five images I was contemplating to go on the cover, and, and uh, the book designer Stuart and his team also came to me with some images that they thought, and ultimately we sent, um, I think, three options over to Anne Godoff, who is the head of Penguin Random House and my editor on this book, and and she chose this cover on the book. It's, it's um It's of a rebel with the Sudanese Liberation Army. And it's a man, a lot of people think it's a woman. And we had snuck into Darfur uh, in 2004 and walked in um, from neighboring Chad and hooked up with these rebels. And we drove around the desert with them for about five days. And every I don't know, hour, or so there was a sandstorm or the the car the truck would break down and we were stuck in the sand and and so this was in one of those moments where uh, the truck had broken down and the rebels were sort of just sitting around and and this is that image. And Lindsay, uh with this book, I mean, who do you want to reach? I want to reach um not only photographers but non-photographers. I want to reach people around the country, um if not around the world. Who don't? Who maybe don't know so much about what happens outside of America, um, the issues that are that are still going on today. You know, maternal mortality. People seem to think. People tend to think that giving birth is just a fact of life, but it's not. It could mean death in many countries. Uh, you know, so so topics like that. Refugees, people on the run. You know, we're talking about the caravan that's approaching the United States, and most people. You know people don't really understand that the people in that caravan are human beings. They're mothers, they're children, they're people fleeing for their lives. So I want people to look at this book and have a better sense of humanity and have a better sense of what are the issues that drive people, that force people, compel them to leave their homes in the middle of the night. Uh, What does war mean? Um, You know, I included the wars that our country is involved in and has been involved in since September 11th, because we've had a great influence on those countries, and so I think it's important for Americans to see.
0: Can I ask where your next assignment's going to take you, Lindsay? Uh,
1: I'm not sure, actually. I just finished uh, Northern Nigeria and Yemen, so um, I need to go home. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been home in a while. Lindsay Adario, again, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist and author of this new book of Love and War. She grew up in Connecticut in Westport, and today she joined us from the studios of NPR in Washington, D.C. Lindsay, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Coming up, we'll meet a West Hartford resident who's the only woman to successfully climb Everest nine times. More about Lakpa Sherpa right after this short break. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. Do you have what it takes to climb up Mount Everest? Well, imagine successfully climbing it nine times. West Hartford resident Lakpa Sherpa is the only woman in the world to hold this record. And Lakpa is here
2: with us. Lakpa, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. And I, I really appreciate you inviting me here. I'm so happy. So earlier this year, I understand that you climbed
0: Mount Everest, as I mentioned, for the ninth time, for people who uh, most of us have heard of Mount Everest, but this we're talking about a mountain that's 29,000 feet above sea level. What was that like to to reach the ascent the ninth time?
2: Yes, because I'm so uh, learning my passions in the top of the Everest. I'm born 4,000 meters in very high altitudes in my mom's house, and after I wake up, my eye I'm a baby. My childhood I just see this mountain around me. Uh because I never know have a toys, I never know have a cell phone. Anything electric's my life uh habit. And I see this mountain, my eyes I open. Uh, I I love because we are my dad also guiding up in the mountain in many tourists and I say I wanna follow them. Mm. My dad put this. Day. Tell me more about your upbringing in Nepal. So your parents, how many siblings uh, did you have? I have seven sisters and four brothers. Yeah, and also my both four brothers guiding people, any Himalayas people come in, tourist comes, they guide service in Nepal.
0: Uh, so I had read that your uh, parents were farmers, but when did your father uh, decide to help
2: climbers make it to the top of Everest? My dad's work hard, and my mom says mostly mom's housewife. And uh, my dad's one looking jobs, bring food in all the childrens, and give a good life in the wife. Uh, he taught the best way. He, he also for brothers must send school very far away. And we are in Nepal, no school with the girl no can go school. Anyway, my brothers very four hours, two hours walk. And I must carry all the terms my back. Two brothers, one is a carry, one is with me walking. And I'm a look like a yellow bus in the air. You know, I carried them all the temps back in the force in a four hour, one two hour back in school, two hour back in four hour I working. My mom's send me pick up the brother, and I must go. Yes. It sounds like you were a good sister then. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm a look like a yellow bus. <laughs> So you
0: were saying that uh, the reason that your father started helping with these climbing expeditions is to help uh, your family, including um, your brothers. So when did you first start
2: helping your father in terms of helping the tourists uh, make that climb? Tourists comes, you know. My dad want to guide up and he showed them the path, guidings, hiking, and he, I want to go, you know, look like my dad, and my mom says no. You are the woman. You must stay home and learning the cooking and whatever woman things. You must need the marriage. And I really boring, you know, I said, no, this is not my jobs and I don't want it. And all my sister listen, but I'm a little bit not listening. I want to go hiking. You know, so much beautiful hiking, hill, you know, this around me. You know why? I want to go explore myself, you know. I, I don't want to stay housewife. And my mom's very worried for me. I cannot found a man. Because I do the men things. And she said who 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 married this girl, you know, she never no learns uh, how many things. This is where we live. Lokba Sherpa's in studio with me. She's a West
0: Hartford resident and the only woman to hold the record of climbing Mount Everest nine times. Despite her mother's reservations, Sherpa went on to work as a porter when she was 15 years old in Nepal, working
2: alongside her father. She would carry items for tourists from one base camp to the next. I carry because I'm very tall, look like my dad. All my sisters are very small size, medium size. I'm a little tall, and I can't carry, look like a man, jobs, and I carry them heavy things, you know. My dad says she can carry heavy things know, she can go with me. But, you know, yes, my dad tests me and I can carry heavy things and I can follow his level walking. Mm. Yeah. And he take me. He say yes. But it was uh,
0: when you were in your 20s, when you were actually able to climb yourself with other women? How did that happen? What did you have
2: to do to get that permission to go? One woman, she had three children and she die. she summit, it, but she you no know, make it down, and she died. There are times I'm really teenagers, my age, and I say, wow, well, I know that she died, and you know, we see, you know, she died, and every woman is scared, and my, everybody's, you know, really, uh, Nepal, uh, Sherpa woman, Nepali woman, they really no do sport. They just wanna stay home, uh, do cooking, and give us a food and husband, and take care of the children, they do. I'm really not wanting this, and I feel, I want men jobs, I like learning men jobs. What are men doing, you know? What are women doing? I want to share, you know, my experience, I want to learn uh, how many men work hard, or how many work hard, I want to do it, but with, see, I want to feel my body. Yeah. I, I want to test them, know, I did. And I'm so scared, you know, I really want to go climbing big mountain, small mountain. I already summit Merek Peaks, Ngawal Peaks, 6,000 meters. I never have been in any school uh, training. I just want to learn myself. Everything is myself. I learn, uh, you know, step by step. Uh,
0: so, how did you and this group of women, did you have to petition the Nepalese government to be allowed to climb yourselves, not as a, as a guide, but this is something that you wanted to do?
2: Uh, the men's no belief. Whoa, why women call me? This woman die, Pasan was die already. Uh, why you want to go? I really want to go, you know, I say. I want to go helping me. I say, uh, you, I need the help. And I write the, some letters and it give everybody's government. Uh, I really want to go at uh, all, you know, some women accept, you know, some smart educated women. Uh, his prime bar- daughters in Nepal, his ne- name, Susma Kwerer, she accept them. She said yeah, she want to go with help. You know, she, she did helping me. And uh, I am, yeah, all the Nepali women's teams I go, you know, I have a long dreams. And I summit because I had my mind set up many, many years. I want to summit mountain Everest. I want to show them Nepali women can do a sport, but no have educated by this sport is learning myself. Mm. And I show them the women I can do it. You know, all women after they really, oh, what did. And she did again. And she did again. She not die. Everybody excited. And they follow my footy step, and I'm very happy. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: So this was a goal of yours for a long time. You said that you uh, learned yourself. When we think about when people do different sports, they have to train for it. And Mount Everest climbing, Mount Everest can be very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. So how did you prepare?
2: Yes, uh, Mount Everest is very dangerous. Uh, by luck, you know, sometimes they can kill. Uh, sometimes uh, mountain everest is, is we cannot fight you know we just go some avalanches is coming we accept them but i'm lucky i feel i'm lucky you know they're not really we also mountain everest god and mount chamolengmo uh, means god in the mothers we really respect them uh, all sharba all sharba khamen respect in the mountain everest there,
0: did you ever have an experience where there was an avalanche or an earthquake where you were concerned about um, surviving yes. to see another day? Can you talk about that?
2: Yes, I'm so earthquake in Nepal, two thousand earthquake uh, day, I'm a day in uh, I'm a kim one, but all the kim Beskem people die and we had, we stay life, kim uh, one people not die. Because game one is more dangerous, but the Everest is, best game is not dangerous. But we stay alive when came one, one people, the game one, two people, uh, game, best game people all die. I feel so shocked. This was in 2015? Yes, uh, 2015. Uh, and I feel all the mountains coming my way. You know, I feel I'm sink in this ice down. I feel I no see my daughters, and I so come five seconds right there go, you know, look like a, all the mountain falling, different direction, and a noisy and we so we are alive, and we come back, and they day I know summit, I come back because so many people die and so many mother nature happens. Mm-hmm. Yes, but
0: that didn't uh, keep you from trying again.
2: I, I feel uh, I accept the mother nature, you know. I going back in the next times, two thousand sixteen, and I summit. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you
0: were able to prove a lot of people wrong, being uh, a woman to climb Mount Everest. You didn't die. You did it again and again and again. What is it about climbing Mount Everest?
2: Uh, what does it mean to you to be able to achieve that? People drinking wine all the times, never know stuff. I feel like that now. I feel all the mountain Everest in my body, all the mountains, I need to go. I know go, I feel I'm sick, you know, I feel something hurt me, you know. I need to go because mountain Everest is my doctors, uh, make me feel good, you know. I had a depression, makes a disappear. Uh, I feel look like changing with the ear, you know, it really make me feel good in the Everest, yes. Mm.
0: I understand that uh, you have three children. Two of them are daughters. How do they feel about their mother being uh, the only woman to have uh, summited
2: uh, Mount Everest nine times? What do they say about you? Are they proud of you? My daughters, is, both daughters born in Harper, uh, Connecticut, Harper. Uh, I feel I'm a Connecticut woman right now. But my English is not so good, but I feel it's a woman here me, you know. I live in almost many years. I've been two children born here. My daughter is uh, now is a uh, 16. For uh, she going Connor. Uh, one is, is uh, she going Cedric's middle East school. She's 11. There, I'm so happy. You know, I work so hard and give this girl good educators. Not look like me. You know how they need it. I feel I'm hurt myself. I cannot read write. You know, I not good to speak English. And I really want these two girls have a great, educated. I taught them my best, and I think they're doing good too. Very good girl. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy. And they, of course, they. I go in Everest. They say, "Mama, are you going again? No way!" And I'm scared. You die? Who watch you, Mama? Who who take care of us? And I look my daughter's face. Believe me, toss me. I am come back. I know them. I'm um, experienced mama, learning many, many years. You can touch your computers in laptops, your phone. You have not very comfortable. You know miss it. I'm gonna look like like the mountain. I'm very comfortable. I come back. You know, she look in my face and she say, yes. Permis? Yes, I promise. I come back. And of course, I come back again and again. They trust me and come back me life, yes. Mm. This is
0: where we live. I'm
2: Lucy Nalpathanchel.
0: My guest today is Lakpa Sherpa, who lives in West Hartford with her children. This past spring, she completed her ninth successful climb of Mount Everest, the world's highest mountain. She's the only woman to hold that record. I asked her how New England's mountains compare to the Himalayas.
2: Sherpa just recently hiked up the White Mountains. I just saw meet my Washington's uh, one month ago. After i coming, I really want to go Explore myself, you know. Here Canada is no no her mountains. You know, but here in Canada very near it's one beautiful mountains. The can hike four hours. Up four hours, come nine hours we walk. It's great, you know look like it's beautiful round here mountain and I don't need to go California, Colorado. <laughs> I opened also callscape calaming. You know, I like to take want to go hike with me I like helping you know teach my experience. You
0: mentioned Cloudscape Climbing so that's your own company where uh, you take people on
2: hiking and climbing uh, expeditions? Yes I like taking hiking climbing because uh, people want to go can contact us. Uh, So your day job is you work at Whole Foods as a dishwasher as you mentioned but
0: your passion is climbing that's why you opened up this company?
2: Yes. Yes.
0: We'll have more uh, information about uh, Cloudscape climbing on our website at wmpr.org slash where we live. Now, Lockbutt can I ask you about um, how Mount Everest has become increasingly popular among tourists uh, who want to climb? Are there um, any concerns that you have with how, I guess, the this uh, industry, uh, for lack of a better word, has uh, exploded in recent years? Because it is dangerous, and we know in, in 2014 there was that um, avalanche that killed um,
2: Many Sherpas. Yes, at this mountain, it's a very good populars because everybody want who no want to go in you know, a top of the wall, you know, beautiful view and beautiful hike. Everybody likes to go. You know, people sometimes scared, but some people no scared. They say, "Okay, I want to go. It's a beautiful top of the wall. Why not?" You know, Sherpa helping. You know, sh- uh, we are helping very well in tourist people. That we really, really, some tourists is the problem. We s- stay there. Some rescue people call. We still stay with the tourist men. Never not let, let alone. We watching look like a babysitting. Mm-hmm. You know, bring very well down, and uh, we put them some in. You know, we s- bring people happy go send home. We jobs this. You know, makes people happy.
0: I understand it's not cheap to climb uh, Mount Everest. I think a, a group of seven, it costs uh, about $70,000. So definitely a, a certain population of wealthy people can afford to do this. Uh, are there enough, uh, what I'm asking is um, with the pressure, with the popularity of climbing Mount Everest, um, are there enough uh, safety measures to protect Sherpas like yourself?
2: Yes. The very smart people come in the Everest, they're climbing. They're very rich people. And uh, also, the very educated people comes. They want to do only one time, and they go home, and it's good. Mm-hmm. They want to dream successfully, happy. What do they want?
0: I mentioned earlier that uh, earlier this year you climbed Mount Everest for the ninth time successfully. Um, when's the next time that you'll be attempting this? Because you said to us that you know you, um, you—it's it, almost as if the mountain calls you back uh, yes. time and time again. And how long does it take?
2: Uh, how much time out of the year does it take to climb Mount Everest? Two months. Uh, the Everest is a season. One season coming, one time, one years, so one season comes. This season is April, April and May. After they had a very good season because springs very near near, you know, we follow the spring up in this. One season's the best area, the April, and I go fly April 10 in Kathmandu, and after I start them climbing up in the mountains. Mm. Uh, in May 20, 21, I summit all the times, maybe early, defend uh, the waders and defend the uh, Everest Waders.
0: Lakpa Sherpa, again, is a West Hartford resident. She's climbed Mount Everest nine times, the only woman to do so. Uh, she holds the record. And she'll be uh, summoning Mount Everest again uh, next spring. Lakpa, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much. And invite me, talking radio. I'm so happy. Namaste. My side. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Carmen Baskoff. Check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Thanks for listening.